Hey, it's your boy Bromar, host of The Bromar Show, and you are listening to A Little Bit of Everything with Angelica. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on the podcast platform that you're listening to. You know, one of the signs that people can probably identify with the most would be a motor symptom called the tremor. So like a resting tremor of a limb, or you see somebody, uh, maybe they're trying to drink a cup of coffee, or, or they're just sitting. They could just be sitting and maybe one finger or one hand or one arm or could be leg. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in on a little bit of everything with me and I am your host, Angelica. This is a podcast that talks about a little bit of everything. So sit back and enjoy the show. Another episode of A Little Bit of Everything with me today. My guest is a neurorehabilitation specialist and NASM master trainer based in Syracuse, New York. And he is the creator of Parkinson's Regeneration Training Education Program and also an author of the Parkinson's Regeneration Training book. Welcome, Carl Starling, to the show. How are you doing today? Fantastic. And thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you for wanting to come on the podcast because there is so much to talk about, especially when I don't, I'm not even familiar with Parkinson's, but before we even get into all of this and what you're working on, tell the listeners a bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, so I am a neural rehabilitation specialist. Um, what that really, what that means is we take movement uh, so let's let's imagine a fitness training session, not in a traditional gym setting where you're using machines necessarily, although you can, but manage, uh, you know, when we look at Parkinson's, we're looking at a much higher risk of people falling down. We want to prevent that. So if we work on walking, work on gait, we work on movement. But we also do it while we're doing other things at the same time. And of course, we can get into um, how this works with each person and, you know, to what level they're able to do two things at once, for example. Uh, basically, the neuro rehabilitation has to do with another word like neuropsychomotor training, which is actually a thing um, mostly referred to in infant development from right out of the womb until they start to pull themselves up and start walking and running around. It's the development process, which involves going back to the rehab, uh, neural rehab stuff, cognitive training, all kinds of cognitive training during movement and maybe some other activities uh, as well. I call it stacking or layering. You know, you can be moving, could be just walking, playing catch, throwing a ball back and forth and maybe I have you start naming off your favorite TV shows or movies or your friends or places you've traveled to and 
oh, the sky's the limit on that stuff. So we're trying to improve uh, brain to body communication. Of course, there's a lot more to that than just thinking and moving. But we're trying to wake up the nervous system, wake up the brain, retrain the brain, have people move better. And it's all part of uh, neural rehabilitation. Now with Parkinson's, is it something that's genetic or is it developed over time as we get older? Um, what can you tell me about that? Cause I'm, I'm being honest. Like I, I'm, I know what it kind of is, but now that you're explaining it more to me, I'm understanding it. And I, sure. you know, I hear it every now and then, but of course this is like the greatest opportunity to hear it from you. And is this genetic or is it something that we develop? Good question. And the answer to that right now, based on research, um, well, let's say that 5% of it is probably genetic, pure genetic. We're, uh, uh, let me qualify that and explain a little bit more. Where a gene mutates, somebody is you know, predisposed to the mutation, it's inherited, and then they have Parkinson's. However, about 90 to 95% of people with Parkinson's have no family history of anyone, no family history of Parkinson's. So what it leads us to, and the research leads us to this, when you look at uh, a lot of the research out there, if you look at the Parkinson's population, you'll see, first of all, that yes, it generally is an age-related disease, in fact, some researchers and doctors say that if we live long enough, all of us will all get it sooner or later. And we might be 120 before we get it, or we might be 50. But generally, it's a, a little bit uh, age-related disease. Uh, I could go off on all these statistics, but for example, in the United States, as of four years ago, and I don't know currently, as of four years ago, average age of diagnosis was 62. In Mexico, as of where I've been many, many times working. The average age of diagnosis two years ago was 55 years old. So we also know that in Uganda, for example, the youngest case uh, we know of is, uh, was diagnosed at nine years old and that there are many teenagers with it. So let's dial back though, to really actually answer your question. Yes, it's generally age-related, Yes, there is uh, some hereditary factor in a few cases, a small percentage, but here's the, here's the, probably one of the key things to think about is when you look at the Parkinson's population and see who has it, you generally see that they've been exposed, generally speaking, this is not all the time, to some, they've been exposed to some type of toxin or they've been in an environment which probably if they're gen genetically predisposed combined with ex uh, exposure to whatever could be applying pesticides for a living, working in a paint factory, an automobile plant, um, what else, being a welder, being a coal miner, those environments <clears throat> tend to uh, trigger the mutation of genes for those, well, I shouldn't say they tend to, they're more likely to trigger a mutation of a gene because they're uh, genetically predisposed. They're around this toxin for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and boom, now they have Parkinson's. 
I could say there's an identical twin study that's very interesting. 100 pairs of identical twins where one has Parkinson's and one does not. And of course, there are a lot of identical twin studies with Parkinson's, but in this one particular study, 97 of the uh, 97 of the twins who had Parkinson's out of each pair had long-term exposure to some kind of toxin or they were in some environment that the other one, their identical twin, didn't have exposure to, which is just kind of interesting, right? So the answer is hereditary, yes, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Genetically predisposed, probably a lot more of that. Yeah, for sure. Wow, that's interesting. That's really, really interesting. And what are early signs of Parkinson's? Well, you know, one of the signs that people can probably identify with the most would be a motor symptom called the tremor. So like a resting tremor of a limb, or you see somebody, uh, maybe they're trying to drink a cup of coffee, or, or they're just sitting, they could just be sitting and maybe one finger or one hand or one arm or could be leg, it's moving, it's involuntary movement. So tremors are common, but not everyone gets a tremor. Uh, some people go through the whole disease, they could have it 30 years, 40 years and never get a tremor, but tremors are fairly common. Um, so that would be probably the first motor symptom, generally speaking, that, that, that is noticeable. But if we dial back to pre-symptoms, like the, what I call them the early, early symptoms in the book that I wrote and in the course I teach, and it's anything I teach, it's all based on research. I don't make anything up. I'm not smart enough to do that. <laughs> I can't just pull things out of the air, right? So no, it's all research-based, but like Dr. Anthony Lang out of Toronto Western Hospital, mm. um, who is a one of the foremost neurologists globally, but not just him, lots of others. Although I do look to him for a lot of information. He talks about some of the earliest symptoms as being things like you're acting out your dreams, for example. Oh. Um, maybe you're, you're uh, in the martial arts and you go to the dojo and you're there three times a week. And then in your sleep, you're doing your kata or you're sparring but you're, you're supposed to be, you're not supposed to be acting out your dreams. You're supposed to be in a, what they call an atonic state. So like there's no muscle tone, tone, your brain keeps your heart and lungs going. So you stay alive, you keep breathing, but you're not supposed to be acting out your dreams. So many people who start acting out dreams, it could be 10, 15, 20, Lang even says 30, 40 years prior to Parkinson's, well, that might be the very, very first sign of either Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, or something else. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say the first one that's the most noticeable, though, besides that, because that could be a number of things, loss of sense of smell. Up until COVID, you never... You never heard about mm -hmm. lost sense of smell. Well, a lot of people didn't hear about it. So we can add COVID. And if you have a loss of sense of smell, well, maybe you got COVID, hopefully not. But probably better to have that than Alzheimer's or Parkinson's because those are things that once they start up, 
it's a lot more difficult to manage and we probably won't be able to stop either of those diseases, although we can usually slow them down considerably with techniques, strategies, and this and that. So I always say if anybody, you or anybody you know, loses a sense of smell, get to a doctor and make sure whoever that doctor is takes you seriously. Don't let them say it's nothing because sometimes it could be I've been all over the world, 30 plus countries teaching. I'm not bragging. It's not my ego. It's my passion. Mm -hmm. And all over the place, I hear about people who lost, oh, yeah, or caregiver. They're the spouse. They're the ones who you really hear from. Oh, he lost his sense of smell 15 years ago. Now he has mm -hmm. Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one of the things. Asymmetrical arm swing. Sometimes you just see somebody whose arm doesn't swing anymore. Well, they might not have a motor symptom of a tremor or um, other things, but that's a possibility. So yeah. there are others too, but those are probably the most common pre-motor symptoms. Mm -hmm. And what can you say is the age of getting, I know everyone's different and there's been a lot of cases from what you're telling me, but sure. when, when was like the youngest age you've heard of? Well, the youngest I heard of was Uganda, a nine-year-old. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my God. And that could have been genetic. Was there more research done about that? Uh, there's not too much. Uh, my foundation actually has given quite a bit of support to the first ever Parkinson's Wellness Clinic that just opened in all of Africa. It's in Uganda. Oh. And what we're hoping to do is... Um, we're hoping to be able to be a, a part of many who donate to to perform research there because right now we don't know what it is i mean we don't know is it something is it toxins are they do they have bad water do they have you know a lot of times the living conditions they're filthy i mean they don't have shoes and they live in huts grass huts a lot of it's very 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 impoverished uh, mm -hmm. overall so I know we have a box of shoes here ready to go out next week, along with a couple of phones and a laptop, things people are donating, you know, like 50 pairs of shoes, and they're going to be just thrilled. 100%. So not to get off topic, but that's the youngest. But if, you know, Michael J. Fox is 29, I think when he was diagnosed, that's very rare, especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. We'll see quite a few in different countries who are in their 30s and 40s, especially Mexico. Mm -hmm. Don't know why. It could be maybe the the jobs, the, what they're around as mm -hmm. you know, with their labor. Don't know though. You you can you brought up a point. It could be because um, it's definitely hard labor, and it's you know my parents are from the Latino um, countries, Central America, Nicaragua, and you know it's I know they weren't farmers, but they did have high intensive labor especially my grandparents did and yeah. but more in Mexico because that's where they harvest and export and import like most of sure. our fruits and vegetables yeah I can see how intensive labor and some of them when they come here to Canada they actually work on farms because that's what they're accustomed to and that's where they know how to take of take yes. care of crops and such so I, I can kind of see that why and it's like even people in the construction industry of bricklayers as well that you know that intensity labor 
well, for some of yeah. them, some people are probably like, Hey, I don't do, I don't work that hard, <laughs> but there, yeah, I can see that. That's that connection for sure. Now, is there different stages of getting Parkinson's? Yeah. According to um, one of the rating scales there are five stages and mm. people, if they don't, let's say pass away from something else before stage five. Um, and that's, I need to clarify something. People generally don't die of Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. That's not what's going to get them. There, something else is almost always the reason that they will pass away. Although Parkinson's may have had a lot to do with it. So, mm -hmm. um, let's see. Stage one, I, you know, actually, and it's in my book, and I have a copy right in front of me. But basically, there are five stages. On the first couple of stages, you're fully functional. It's just that as you advance through stages, you know, you could be working, you could be playing sports, you, you know, golfing, tennis, riding a bike, whatever. Um, stage two, even stage three, maybe. But as you get more towards um, stage four or end, end stages, they call them, you know, final stages, it's, it may be really hard to walk, feed yourself, get dressed, write your name, of course, that could be a problem early on, but doing, you know, just daily functional activities and movements and, you know, navigating around might be impossible. And at stage five, it's very possible you could be using a wheelchair. And if you do, sometimes you need a remote, you need one of those little electronic things because you can't propel it with your hands on the wheels. You might need a motorized one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it, you know, again, it varies uh, depending upon the person. Yeah. But what we're here for is really to um, intervene. And the earlier you earlier you get diagnosed, the yeah. better. So that's another thing too. Is um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about the intervention strategies that can help not just the Parkinson's but anyone, even mm -hmm. like my mother who has no diagnosis at 84, she's just had bad balance and she fell down, broke her ankle in surgery. Mm -hmm. But her, her cognition has improved because we do so many things, uh, gamifying and moving at the same time. Um, I do go off on tangents, but I'm pretty good at coming back. Getting diagnosed early, the earlier, the better. And that can be an issue depends upon where, who they are and what kind of neurologist they have. And some of yeah. them just, you know, we need our neurologists, but if they say, oh, it's, uh, there's a very, I'll just totally just off on another tangent here for a second. There's a, I can't say his name, very, very well-known singer who I've been working with, who was misdiagnosed and mistreated with the wrong meds for seven years. Oh my God. Because of a neurologist who just, refused to diagnose this this man with Parkinson's and guess what that's what he has when he finally got another neurologist who said yeah it's Parkinson's oh my gosh you know these other meds did some damage not a lot but I mean and it's reparable but for gosh sakes I know they have a hard hard job my son's a doctor but it's but still he would say get a second opinion get a mm -hmm. third opinion get diagnosed as soon as possible and then start intervention strategies as soon as possible. So you can manage disease symptoms, uh, slow disease progression and improve quality of life. For sure. 
Yeah, and that's very unfortunate to be misdiagnosed and be given the wrong medication, especially at the early stages. I cannot. That's just such a long time. It it is. It, it really is. Some, wow. And there's a friend of mine in England. I can say his name because he writes about it all the time. Ian Frizzell, mm-hmm. who it took 16 years for him to finally get diagnosed with. He just knew he had Parkinson's so nobody would diagnose him and when they finally did it was so he was so far into the symptoms he had uh, deep brain stimulation surgery which is called dbs which is electrodes placed through the top of the head into the brain that helped to generate an electrical current to activate the part of the brain that's dying the substantia nigra to help it and other areas to produce more of the neurotransmitter that you're lacking because of the disease that neurotransmitter is the thing that when it diminishes in production causes these symptoms of or these you know you might know you want to take a step mm-hmm. but you can't get your body to do it because you don't have enough dopamine it's like the mess you know you want to go your foot won't move feels glued to the floor mm-hmm. that's what they say i don't mm-hmm. have parkinson's but this is how they describe it so many times and then you know you could be walking and then freeze all of a sudden and then that that could lead to a fall and so you know for him it was just such a long agonizing process Mm -hmm. but he's doing pretty well now well i'm glad he's doing well i'm really glad and you are the founder and ceo of parkinson's regeneration training tell us what you do Thank you for asking. So mm-hmm. <laughs> this name was uh, just came up. We we're trying to regenerate quality of life. We're not regenerating. Uh, we, we're not stopping disease, although we'd like to think we could. Mm-hmm. Um, slowing it down is one thing. So if we look at the important, the most important things, um, and I am speaking to Parkinson's, but I'm also speaking to, let's say, other people who have a history of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or other brain-related neurological disorders, that if they, and they, they may not know, I mean, if they're genetically predisposed or not, maybe they need some testing if they wanna go get it. And I'm not sure how accurate that is, but let's just say somebody's predisposed. What we do will help them also to delay likely i should say likely very likely delay disease onset or maybe just eliminate it altogether from onsetting because they did the things that helped the brain to stay healthier and not get invaded by this these conditions like alzheimer's and parkinson's so the first thing the most important thing as far as slowing disease progression is cardio now it doesn't have to be uh, high intensity. It doesn't have to be like hit training or running fast or anything. Although the more intense, the better, as long as you're physically, you know, I say people with Parkinson's are people too, or they might've had a heart problem. They might've had cancer. They might've had screws and rods in their back from whatever. They could have a lot of different things. So they aren't Parkinson's. They are people who live with it. So taking into, their, uh, into consideration what they can do safely and what their level of physical ability is 
we'll push as hard as I can. It's not going to hurt them. But, you know, research out of Stony Brook shows, Stony Brook and Long Island at their neurology lab, Dr. Lisa Morturi there is awesome. And she basically says 30 minutes a day of, of cardio, five days a week, so two and a half hours a week, but split up into five days. It's really important to, to do the five days at least half an hour. The equivalent intensity of walking as fast as you can for that time. Now, for some people, it might not be that fast. So we might, but 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 something's better than nothing. And if you want to know why that's important, I can tell you the the real uh, the icing on the cake. Yeah, definitely. I would love to know. So the icing on the cake, the, the thing about the um, uh, cardio is that it, you get your heart rate up. Now, some people say, well, that's not enough. That's, well, it's better than nothing. And walking is even more and more and more being recognized as one of the best things we can possibly do. Even I wanted to resist that idea three, four years ago, thinking, no, you have to do more. Well, Maybe you don't have to do more. If you can do, that's great. But the bottom line is, whatever you do, get the heart rate elevated. And the reason that's important is because when you get to, let's say, 15, 20 minutes, according to research, of elevated heart rate, your brain kicks into action by producing this growth factor, which is also a protein. So it's a brain-created protein as a result of an elevated heart rate. And the research is out on this. It's everywhere. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or short for that is BDNF, BDNF. So BDNF is important because as it circulates in the brain, not only does it help to maintain cellular structure, cellular in the brain, brain cells, cellular integrity, uh, it helps to slow progression of dying brain cells and extend the life of brain cells. And there's new research now that shows that it helps to give birth to new brain cells, uh, not in every area of the brain, but in a couple of areas, the olfactory bulb, so sense of smell, and then the hippocampus, which is uh, memory and planning, which on a little tangent here, it's why the Maria, Maria Shriver Foundation, which we've worked with some in the past couple of years, put out a study that showed that people do this five days a week of exercise, 30 minutes, six months, people with early onset Alzheimer's, she has a foundation for Alzheimer's because her father, Sergeant Shriver, died of that. Um, they had overall improved memory almost straight across the board six months later after doing cardio because they had new brain cells in the hippocampus. So it's really cool stuff. BDNF helps maintain brain health. It also helps to create, uh, not BDNF, cardio so yes, BDNF brain health, yes. Cardio also helps to create more dopamine in the brain. That's what's lacking as a neurotransmitter in people with Parkinson's. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. And so it does a lot of things besides transmitting from brain to body through the nervous systems what to do and then being able to perceive what you're doing as well back to the brain through body sensations, you know, touch, smell, visual, um, uh, audio, 
it uh, also is a reward to chemical, but it's also a driver. So for any of us, dopamine is uh, plays a huge role in, let's say, driving us, uh, well, I want that, that's over there. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go get that. Dopamine is what got me over to the other side of whatever to get what I want. So maybe it's running a marathon. Maybe it's finishing your taxes. Maybe it's... <laughs> something I hate to do, but <laughs> dopamine is a driver. And with a lack of dopamine in the body, in the brain, a lot of times people are not motivated with Parkinson's, that is, to do very much. It's kind of to be expected because they don't have that driver motivator chemical in their brain as much as they used to. But once they get started, that's my saying, I drive people crazy with it. I said, just get started. Because I'm in the same boat as you. I don't really ever feel like exercising. Yeah, I used to be 70 pounds heavier and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I lost it and I've kept it off and I feel really good. But it'd be really easy for me to put on a lot of weight if I didn't do something. So I know, and I'm the same as everybody else. It's like, we all have a brain. We all have a nervous system. So we can all create dopamine. If I just get started almost always within five minutes, two minutes, 10 minutes, I get the energy to keep on moving and doing stuff. So getting started is the key. So cardio, we covered that. That's one of two main things that, that is extremely helpful. We could go into a million things, but I just wanted to really talk about two things. So we just talked mm -hmm. about one. Would you like to hear the other one? Sure. No, definitely. This is so helpful information because it's it's helping me understand it. Also, the knowledge you have and people are listening to this can really say, wow, like, you know, I'm definitely going to support your cause and what you're trying to do because it's you're so informative. And that's what I love when people are they have something and they're so passionate and also they can provide the information so this way i'm getting educated and everybody else who's listening can get educated as well well um angelica i appreciate that a lot i mean you can probably hear it in my voice i get pretty excited when i talk about it but it's because i i've you know these days with covid i'm home even before then i had cut back a lot on the traveling but i see it here with people i work with doctors refer people to me now because they know I'm here and I'm not traveling and they know that what we do, we being me, it, it but the person with Parkinson's or whoever, what we do together, it, it helps them. And so that's what we want. And it's a kind of, when I looked at um, putting this course together, it, the whole, I won't tell you the story because that would take too long and it's in the book. It's in the preface of the book just how I got into this like eight almost nine years ago and working with people with movement disorders particularly Parkinson's but the bottom line is um, I started looking at what's out there for education and I saw a gap I saw what people tend to know that's common knowledge versus what there is that can be done and then there's this huge gap in the middle so the idea of the course I created and the book that I wrote this is to get to, it's to fill that gap with techniques and strategies that can help to manage disease symptoms, improve quality of life, reduce falls, improve cognition, um, slow disease progression. So cardio is number one. 
But we also know the brain is moldable. When you learned, have you ever ridden a bicycle? Yes. Okay, so the first day you rode your bike, were you really good at it? Like, get on the first time ever and you just go? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's the way it's supposed to be. I don't know if there's anyone who is just naturally good, like, within a few seconds. But you learned. Mm -hmm. And then you rode. And then you rode. I, if I rode all the time when I was a kid. Um and my kids, both of them, this is going back. They're both growing kids now, but starting families. I'm going to be a grandpa in like a week. First time. Yay. Okay. So. <laughs> Congrats. That's exciting. And my son's wife is going to have a baby and we're going to have two grandkids as of next April. So it's really cool. But anyways, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch them grow because I understand this differently than I did when my kids were young. But when you learn to do something. The brain has uh, what, what we call neuroplasticity is that moldability to it. It's able to be shaped and formed. And how it happens is when you get on that bike or you learn how to, you know, write a word or do a math equation or if you learn how to do anything, it's happened to you right now because you're learning new stuff with what we're talking about. So your brain is having these, um, for anybody listening, there's a good chance if you didn't know everything in this that I'm saying all, already, then you're experiencing these electrical synaptical firing patterns between neurons in your brain. And the more you study this stuff, the more those electrical synapses will fire together, the better you get at riding a bicycle or speaking another language. Let's, let's say I'm learning Spanish still, but I'm learning it and doing pretty well mm -hmm. is that these electrical firing patterns cause the wiring of neurons to uh, happen t together. Like, so neurons that wire together or fire together, neurons that fire together, wire together. And the more extensive these webs of firing uh, neural pathways or neural circuitry, the more extensive those are developed. Well, whatever it is we're applying that part of the brain to riding a bike, wearing Spanish, you know, learning to play an instrument, whatever it is, the more they are reinforced, the, more, the better you get, which explains why the more you do something, you usually get better. You don't feel those things happening in your brain, but that is what's happening. So if we take a person who's lost an ability, let's say somebody who has Parkinson's and could be anything though, right? Just anything. I do this all the time myself. And we we get them, like I was saying back in the beginning, multitasking, for example, I didn't say this, but I follow it with something I already said, multitasking, maybe there is, it could be as simple, simple doesn't always mean easy, as walking and talking could be enough of a distraction to cause them to miss something and, you know, trip over a threshold or whatever. Well, we practice these things, right? Because movement is impaired. So we practice some type of movement. It could be, I have a gentleman now, 10 years into diagnosis, he was my first ever uh, patient with Parkinson's maybe nine years ago, almost. He still can jump through an agility ladder on the ground, single leg laterally, so sideways or zigzag or forwards and even backwards 
each leg. It's easier on his left leg because his right leg isn't as strong and has tremors. But he could be going through there or walking on the curb. We train in a park and there's this really cool curb. So he'll be like walking on the curb, maybe walking sideways on the curb where one foot crosses in front of the other while he's maybe playing catch with me and naming off every Broadway show he likes. Or last week we were talking about all the countries he's been to in Europe or across the pond. What Russia? Oh, where'd you go in Russia? Oh, I went to Moscow. Oh, great. As he's playing catch and or spinning something around or, or juggling uh, these scarves that I have. It's a little easier to juggle scarves, three scarves than it is three lacrosse balls. But anyways, he's doing multiple things at once. And I said, oh, great. You went to Moscow. Spell it for me. Oh, M-O-S-C-O-W. Spell it backwards. Oh, where else did you go? Oh, we went to uh, Copenhagen. Great. Spell that one. Oh, spell it backwards. Or do math equations. Or tell me how to get from your here to your neurologist's office as you work walking a figure eight pattern or bouncing a basketball back and forth. Um, and then another thing we have is, and I know we're probably tight on time, but I'll just say real quick is the... Um, Reactive training is really fun too. I have this lighting system that lights up with these portable lights and I'll put on boxing gloves. Might have uh, a few lights on the ground, Velcroed onto this mat. And then I hold this big padded thing with lights on it and you know, start off with, okay, just get as many lights as you can, hands and feet, whatever lights up, step on it, punch it. Okay, I can change it. Well, now I got, okay, right hand's gonna be red. Left hand's gonna be blue, go. So I, I set it up so it's only red and only blue and I say, okay, right right side is red. Okay, right foot gets the red lights, right hand gets the, and left gets blue. And, or maybe see it's blue and green on the right and yellow and orange on the left, which will really mess you up, right? As the administrator of these things, I need to keep track to see if he's doing it right. And it's just as hard for me as it is for him because sometimes we switch roles and then he says, no, I'd rather hit. So it's like, it's reactive training. So bottom line is to sum all that up, if we can create more, the better somebody gets it, this seemingly infinite number of exercises we can do besides your traditional strength and your traditional this and that, which is fine. It's good to do that too. But retraining the brain, Cognitive training during focused movement. Let's just bring it down to a simple thing like that. Cognitive training, so cognitive tasks during movement, maybe two movements, moving and playing catch, whatever. That helps to fire electrical synapses, create new neural circuitry. So the, the bottom line is, and I'm almost done with this here, is we create this new neural circuitry that will benefit the person outside of the training session so that then when they go to the store or they go somewhere and they get, they, they're less likely to fall down. We just want them to move better. We want them, a lot of times cognition, we've seen so many people whose cognition and reaction time improves very quickly, like within maybe a month or sometimes within a couple of weeks, people say, oh, I talked to my dad the other day, man, he's like, He's just sharper. Well, he's doing the work. I'm just telling him what to do. I'm so glad to hear this. Uh, I just, you know, you retrain the brain, 
do cardio, slow disease progression, move better, fall less, improve quality of life. That's what it's all about. Definitely. And you have such amazing information. And also on your website, you've got so much going on. You even have the book in Spanish, which is fantastic. And are you doing interviews in Spanish too? Because I see some Spanish uh, training videos and some interviews. Well, I spent a lot of time in Mexico, Latin America, Argentina. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a very big, I I will say, I hate to use the word following. It's really connections and relationships Mm -hmm. there. And I'm always texting in Spanish every single day, multiple times with, especially Mexico, but Nicaragua, Salvador, Mm -hmm. um, Belize. And so... I had a, a gentleman whose job is his thing is like he translates into Spanish in a way where no matter what dialect of Spanish you're speaking, whether you're Catalano, Castellano, well, Spain or Mexico or wherever, you're going to be able to read and understand the book. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a big book, though, because it takes mm-hmm. more words to say in Spanish than you say in English. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, people are interested in the book. I mean, I, I can tell them where to go if you'd like to yes please share and also share the your social media links to you and your website oh sure so okay the book is called parkinson's regeneration training the website uh, the primary website is the same thing just put a dot com at the end parkinson's regeneration training dot com so if you want the book, though, you could type that same thing into Amazon search and you'll find the book on Amazon in English and in Spanish. Uh, it's available in a lot of countries, but not all countries yet. It's just a little frustrating, but we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I believe it's $35 on Amazon. And then the Kindle, I think it's 27 Of course, that's everywhere. Um, I just want to say all proceeds, 100% of uh, money that is spent goes to donate. I mean, we just donated a couple hundred dollars to another family in Mexico who I know. Oh, wow. uh, we sent, like, it's not a lot of money. I mean, they needed thousands, but it's sent $500 to Parkinson's in Uganda because it was able just enough to get them over the top and also get their, their WHO grant because we were able to finally just add enough so that we gave them what they needed so they could get the grant that matches what they raised. And now they have a wellness center there. And people are learning that Parkinson's isn't contagious because that is a thing. They actually, there in Uganda and a lot of part of Africa, they mm-hmm. think it's contagious. Or if you get an uh, argument with your mother-in-law, you're going to get Parkinson's. That's actually like a belief, but it's, it's not true. So education is also being provided. So all the money goes, all is donated if you buy it from another site, though, called The PD Book, just like I said, just like it's on thepdbook.com, well, I will send it to you along with, well, it'll be signed, a special bookmark in it. And plus, I have a CD that I put out this year, and you get a free copy of that. It's music picked by people with Parkinson's with a positive message for people with Parkinson's, and the guitar player has Parkinson's. Believe it or not, we're being considered for two Grammy Awards, Album of the Year and Producer of the Year, and I can't even believe it. But, huh. hey, 
I hope it happens because then we'll raise more money and help more people. So thepvbook.com, I can send you in Spanish or English. Um, yeah. And it's $28 there instead of 35 Wow, that's awesome. Well, Carl, I got to thank you so much for all this information because, you know, like I said, and I was being honest, I don't know much about it. I've heard about it, but it wasn't something that was in my family or friends. But, you know, you hear it, you know, spare the moment of like, you know, neighbors or acquaintances, etc. But I truly did not know what it really was. And I really thank you so much for really sharing all this information again. Once again, everybody, the website is called parkinsonsregenerationtraining.com. And the book is called the same thing, Parkinson's Regeneration Training. Everything's going to be in the show notes. You can click on all the links there, grab the book, share the information to friends, relatives, or anybody you know who would really benefit and also donate and help them out because it's amazing what you're doing and how you're giving back. And I really thank you again, Uh, Carl, for being on the show. Thank you. I I forgot one thing. Just one thing is the book also comes with no matter what version. In fact, the audible version will be out probably in a week or two, Amazon has it as being, so if you go to the Audible app, which is an Amazon app, mm-hmm. the audio version is going to be on, and that's read by a guy, not me, because I don't read like very well, but mm-hmm. I don't speak well, and like, but it's going to be great, but um, no matter what version you buy, Kindle, paperback, or Audible when it comes out, comes with a free support website forever access where i keep putting more information that's not in the book because i keep learning more and literally hundreds of videos that show demonstrations of exercises so i just want to make sure people know that site is part of the book awesome awesome and definitely going to be in the show notes (laughs) thank you so much again angelica i appreciate your generosity and just the opportunity to share. Thank yeah, you. definitely, definitely. And, you know, thank you because I've felt like I'm walking out of this interview as very educated. At least I know there's a website out there because you never know. You may run into somebody. I may run into somebody who could be like, you know, this is what's happening. Like, I don't know what to do. It's like the beginning stages. And I'm going to say parkinsonsregenerationtraining.com. Well. <laughs> Thank you. It's like everybody knows somebody with Parkinson's, it seems, almost, and baby boomers. I'm 59. There's a lot of baby boomers now, a lot of health problems, unfortunately, but at least we have, you know, this resources here for people. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much again, Carl. Thank you. You have a fantastic day. Thank you. And to all my listeners out there, everything's going to be in the show notes. Thank you, Carl. And that's all we have for now. Hi, this is Michelle Miller from Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm Jessica with the Beautiful Feet podcast. Hey, it's your boy Bromar, host of the Bromar Show. Hello, everyone. It's the Coupon Queen Pen from the CQP Moments podcast. What's up, everybody? This is your boy Ken, aka the gentleman of the gentleman lifestyle podcast. Hi, this is Stephanie Valente, the local massage therapist. And you are listening to A Little Bit of Everything with Angelica.
That's it for now. And thank you for tuning in on another episode of A Little Bit of Everything with me. 